Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome to the John Papaloni Show. Today, we are doing the live Q&A, and I got special guest Joseph Cicada in the house. Welcome, Joseph. Thank you so much for having me, John. Appreciate being here. Absolute pleasure. I am super excited, super stoked for this uh, edition. We have so many questions. Today, I actually have a lot of the questions pre-printed, mm -hmm. and I, a lot of times I usually read them off the screen, but hey, what can I say? Sometimes... I'll use the ones that you guys send me to off the screen and the ones we got in advance. We'll read them off. So we're going to start off with question number one. What are the most common mistakes to avoid when buying a property in 2023? Joseph, take it away. All right. The number one most common mistake that we see every single time is going right up to your max budget. Um, there's a lot of hidden costs, a lot of unforeseen costs. It's best to know what you're about to buy and exactly how much you can afford before you get there. Um, that's the biggest, biggest mistake anyone can make at this point. Yeah, absolutely agree with you on that. I mean, that is a big mistake. I mean, trying to, uh, you know, fit in a budget that uh, doesn't make sense and overdoing it is, you know, it may seem exciting. And for the first two to three months, I think what ends up happening is it's exciting. So you don't know that you're a little house poor and you're spending way too much. It ends up being that uh, you're excited, but eventually two, three months down the road and all you do is feel how much you're spending and then it becomes painful. And now you start having buyer's remorse. So that could be a, a, a massive problem. So for question number two, Joseph, we're going to get you to read that one. Absolutely. So question number two is, how do I determine the value of my home with all the changes that has happened in the last two years? Hmm, that's a very interesting one. Now, generally, typically what you do is you do the home comparison. You take like if your house is a three bedroom, two bathroom, you would take that another three bedroom, two bathroom house in the same vicinity of where you are and you're trying to get houses that are comparable to yours, such as if you have a single fan, uh, single garage, you want one with a single garage, three bedrooms, two bathrooms. If your house is 1,500 square foot, you want to compare it to another 1,500 square foot or something relatively as close as possible. Now, if there's differences, there's certain things that might get deducted. Like if you, for example, if one has a four-bedroom house and, you're and yours is a three-bedroom house and just say you get the, by comparables, you get the, the fact that the bedroom is worth just say $20,000, you would deduct $20,000 from your house from the last one. Now, you also do that with comparisons in terms of appreciation. If you know the house went up 1%, so you would deduct the 20000 then you would add the 1% that it went up over the last month or down, depending on the market. So it's direct comparison. Where the question is today, and I think this is where why it's in our you know, Q&A here, is that um, there's been a lot of inconsistencies and there's been a lot of changes. And the direct comparison doesn't always work. Um that is a very true point, and I think that's where it becomes tricky, and there's a matter of opinions. So the key thing I want to caution you is that you want to make sure that you do price it right, because if you get it wrong, it's going to hurt you long term. Because it's not one of those things that, well, I'll price a house at a million, and if it doesn't sell, I'll just price it at 900, then we'll get an offer that's reasonable. It doesn't work that way. What happens is as you lower the price, you look desperate, and then you're going to get the deal finders that are going to come in and try to lowball you even more. So you want to get it right the first time around. Um, 
sometimes you, this is where the realtor's job comes into play. And this is where a, a, a true professional, someone who's done transactions in the community, has experience, will be able to tell you the upward or downward trend and the percentages. And they'll be able to see the last compared you know, sale in the area and be able to, to figure out where the market has gone. So if it's gone up 10% or 20%, they'll know that and they'll be able to get that 10 to 20% difference and be able to put it into the price. Um, and that's what it comes down to. Last home sale was four months ago. Four months ago, we were down 20%. Well, look at what it was. And uh, now we're up 20%, add 20% to that price. You should be roughly around there, something like that. That's my perspective. It's not that simple, but that's the roundabout. Look at the stats, compare the stats and see where you lie in the changes. And Joseph, what do you want to add to it? I mean, everything you just said is something that I've been doing every single time. And I've been doing this now for about 10 years. Uh, so that's, we, we yeah, everything. Uh, comparative market, uh, that's what we start with. That's our starting point. Uh, then we look at the value of each different house that was sold. Yeah, so you take 20 grand for a bedroom or 20 grand for a bathroom here and there. That's, that's about right. And then, yeah, the realtor matters. A realtor is going to tell you, Hey, this is the market's gone up like 5%. We have to adjust for that or gone down 4%. Uh, it matters where we are um, just at that point in time. And a good realtor will be able to tell you, hey, this is what it is at the moment. Whether you believe us or not, unfortunately, is not up to us. <laughs> yeah, well said on that one. That's exactly it. So, I mean, we can only provide you with the advice. We can't uh, convince you that we're right or wrong. It's really up to you if you want to, uh, you know, stick with that. In the end, what it comes down to is that ultimately it's the home seller's decision where at what price they want to list at. Just because we tell you a million and you don't want to do it, you're not uh, forced to do it. You're not, uh, uh, you know, like there's no gun to your head. You're still choosing whether or not you decide that you want to believe it. So moving on to question number three. It's a long one. Absolutely. Uh, Joe, I believe this is yours. Yeah, I'll take on to this one. All right. So Mike, the landlord, has rented his house out to Jeff, the tenant, and his two friends. The first six months were flawless, as they usually are. Uh, payments were made on time. The two friends of Jeff have moved out, and Jeff has re-rented it out to two new people without the landlord's permission. So already taking a bad turn. Uh, Jeff has been collecting rent from the two new people, but has not been paying rent to Mike. Mike does not want to go to court if he doesn't have to. The other tenants want to stay, but have been paying Jeff. Can the other two tenants pay the landlord? How can Mike evict Jeff? Oh, <laughs> this one's a doozy. <laughs> that, that, there's a lot going on in there. Um, yeah. Um, I guess I, I'm not going to lie. This one has so much going on. I almost want you to take it just so I don't have to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you go and I'll, I'll follow right after. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. All right. You, you got me. All right. So here, Mike has uh, is the original tenant from what I understand. Mm -hmm. And uh, he subletted it to two other people, which is really not the proper way to do it. You need the landlord's permission. Now, in this case, the other two people have been paying the landlord, so I can understand why the landlord wants to keep the other two people and evict Mike. But unfortunately, you can't evict people. You can't evict someone on the lease and not the people who are not supposed to be there. So the way to do it would be to have the other two people, once you evict Mike and you evict everybody, you would have the other two people reapply 
for the new lease and get them under a new lease. And then you can rent to those two after evicting Mike. You'd have sorry, to go to. Sorry, sorry. Jeff, Jeff's the tenant. Sorry, Mike's the landlord. Jeff, my bad. <laughs> yeah. So, sorry. Okay. So what happens is you would have to ev evict Jeff and, and the two people that are with him. And then once they leave, at that point in time, you can uh, re-rent the house, relist it, and uh, you can take on the uh, previous tenants and have them in there as well. I think that's uh, that, that's that's the option you have. It's still going to require you to go through the landlord and tenant board, which is probably going to be a 10-month process. Yeah. So the suggestion here would be for uh, Mike to serve the eviction notice on the proper date, which is uh, usually the... Um, well, if you're uh, collect rent on the first of the month, you have to serve it on the 30th, as an example, to make sure it's before that and give them the uh, the, the, the eviction notice. And then uh, if they refuse to evict and they refuse to leave, then you got to go to the tenant board. And uh, because we are in Canada, you can't actually evict anybody during the winter months. Um, so, yeah, the, that's the only way. Unfortunately, you will have to go through the court systems if you want any bit of your money back. Uh, you do have to pin it all on Jeff because Jeff is the one hoarding all the money. Um, so, yeah. And then, yeah, you have to once once everybody's evicted because you have to evict Jeff and the other two people have to follow Jeff because it's Jeff's tenants technically. Um, yeah. Well, once you evict everybody, then you could go back to those two tenants that were staying there and then reintroduce them and rewrite the lease altogether. Um, that would be the only way, truly. Absolutely. Now, let, let's be clear. Those tenants don't actually have to physically leave mm -hmm. for you to be able to get a new lease. But before you can give them a new lease, you have to have Jeff evicted through the landlord and tenant board. Mm -hmm. So it, that's it's just a process. They don't have to physically leave but they have to be part of the eviction process with the landlord and tenant board. Which is a pain. <laughs> Absolutely. Like I, I, uh, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to say, I feel sorry for the landlord here. Cause it's not, uh, it's not an easy process at all. No renting. If you don't find good renters. Oh, oh boy. It's a challenge. Yeah, for sure. So let's move on to, Question number four. Now I've got the long doozy. Yay. <laughs> Woo. <laughs> I've purchased a new construction project that I've recently closed on. When I made the original offer, the interest rates were between 2 to 3%. But I ended up closing at 5.35%. The condo is an investment for us. The home that we live in is in, in it and has an interest rate of 2.7%. But our mortgage renewal is coming due in six months. The issue is that we don't think we can afford to pay two mortgages at 5.35%. And we want to sell the condo as a result. Our question is, when do we put the condo up for sale? And what is the best option to minimize costs, such as taxes? What are our options? We want to avoid losing money if we can sell it and, ha and have, we want to lose money. If we can sell it and have to rent it, is there anything we can do to make sure we qualify for a mortgage renewal coming up? I think the question, you want to avoid losing money. If we can't sell it, sorry, I read that wrong. My bad. If we can't sell it. That makes sense. And have to rent it. Is there anything? Um, now, again, coming up to mortgage renewal, that's the uh, thing. I think the first thing you should do is talk to a mortgage agent and figure out whether or not you can afford it. Um, at that point in time, you'll know where you stand. Yeah. What do you think, Joe? Oh, yeah, no. A good mortgage agent is incredibly rare and an amazing source of information. Uh, they have uh, pure knowledge of what's happening. They will sit with you. They will go through your finances piece by piece 
and they will tell you exactly where you stand. Um, they're the best source of that for that information. Um, but on the first question of do we put our condo up for sale? Um, because it's an investment property, you're going to get nailed with taxes anyways. So your best bet, I think, is just to list it right away um, because you're going to pay it. You're going to pay anyways. Yeah, well, this is it comes down to the other thing is that if here, here's a key question, if you're selling it because you just don't think you can get approved, then talking to a mortgage broker right away mm -hmm. is the best option because they'll tell you what you can afford at the interest rate. And they'll be able to tell you whether you should be worried or not, or whether you should list it beforehand. There might be options that uh, still provide uh, affordability there. Um, once you discover what the mortgage broker says and you realize whether you can or can't afford it, then you have to decide whether you, you need to sell it right away. But as Joseph said, you're going to pay taxes no matter what, because it's an investment property. So um, one of the tricks that I suggest is that I would... Uh, like personally, this is what I would do. If you're going to keep it, I would try to get as much of a mortgage on the rental property as you possibly can and have as little mortgage as possible on your primary residence because you do not pay capital gains on loans. So the one way you can do that, if you have a bigger loan, like look, your primary residence is exempt from taxes. So you don't really want to have a large loan on your primary residence. That's just general. So since you have to renew your mortgage, maybe there's a way you can renew with a joint mortgage and you want to get that mortgage on the rental property as high as possible. You want to have that 80-20 split, which is a minimum, and then have your primary home as uh, low as possible. If that's an option, if you can't afford the mortgage and you have to sell it, sell it. That's that's the only option. Then I would do it. Actually, I wouldn't even wait. I would do it now. Um, the market has heated up a bit. There's bidding wars going on again, and the prices are climbing up. So now is a great time to get onto the market, and because uh, we don't know what the future holds, we don't have a crystal ball. I can't guarantee that it's going to continue going up. I can't say that it's going to come down. I don't know, and I don't think even Joseph knows. Oh my gosh! I wish I had that crystal ball. Everyone keeps talking about. <laughs> Exactly. Right. So none of us have that crystal ball. And as a result, we can only talk about the market now. And right now it's heated up and now would be a good time to get on the market. And uh, if you have an agent, that's great. If not, uh, both myself or Joseph is available. Mm -hmm. Feel free to call us. And uh, if you do have an agent, that's OK. That's great. It's good that you have someone that you can trust and uh, just hurry up and get it on the market if you have to sell it. If if being the key word there, if you can keep it as an investment, absolutely keep it as an investment. But if you have to sell it, sell it now 100 percent. all right joe this one's on you now Ooh, uh we heard about a new savings account for the first time home buyers how does that work and what is the details behind it and it's called the fhsa first time buyers home savings account um i had someone recently go through this uh so i'll kind of just quickly talk about it so basically the government's going to loan you um some money. I, I can't remember the exact details. It depends on the, the purchase price of your house. You get a certain percentage. I think the maximum you can get is 20 grand. Um, Actually, Joe, that was the old program, the new one. Oh, right, right, right. This they is changed. the new one. Let me take this one because I, I, I just they did uh, change. I just read this one. Yes. Go for it. What's happening, this is going to be similar to what uh, an RRSP is, yeah. but this is not retirement savings. This one here is solely for the purchase of a home, and it is only and exclusively to first-time home buyers. 
Yes, yes. And, I remember uh, this change now. <laughs> yes. So that one there is uh, exclusively for first-time home buyers. And the way it's like I said, it's like RSPs and TFSAs. It's kind of a combination of both. And the way that it works is that you're allowed to put in up to forty thousand dollars total towards your, uh, you know, uh, towards this account, mm -hmm. and it's tax-free in terms of any interest or any kind of gain it gets. Um, Again, maximum is forty thousand and eight thousand per year. So that forty thousand is really basically over five years. It's not all at once. So that's the key thing. And just like an RSP, you have to start. You have to use it by age seventy-one. Now RSPs, you don't have to use all of it at age seventy-one, but you have to start deducting it around that age. So that's where the difference is. Now, what you can do if you're seventy-one years old and you have not used this account to buy a home then what you could do is move that into an RSP and not pay the taxes. Or you could just withdraw it and you have to pay the uh, income taxes uh, at the rate that it is at the time. And um, yeah, so whether or not it's a good moment or not, now this is where we're going to debate. I think that the program was a good idea, but I think it's far too late and far too little. Um, here's my reasoning and then you can give me your input. My reasoning is that in today's day and age in Toronto, at least, I mean, may not apply any other in other provinces. I can only speak about Ontario where I live. Um, the average home sale out there is about a million bucks and 40,000 isn't even 5%. That's only 4%. So if you're using that as your down payment and that's your only savings, you're going to be short. So you're going to still have to save some more on top of that. What ends up happening is that you can only do eight thousand per year. We're going through in that economic uh, turmoil, for a lack of better description. So most people are having—not most people, a lot of people—are having problems putting away any money as it is. Now the benefit is like an RSP. So instead of our, you know contributing to your RSP, if you've already hit the maximum thirty-five k there, that uh, you can use for a home, you would contribute to this. So that would help, but. Again, it's only eight thousand. You get an eight thousand deduction from your taxes, but you have to have that eight thousand. And if you're squeezing through and making minimum payments on your credit card now, and you're trying to save up eight thousand dollars in the year when you're not even when you're going check to check, that's going to be a little bit more challenging. And I don't think that's going to be the market for everybody all the time. I just think we're going through a high stress economic time at the moment with high interest rates, high inflation. And the job loss is increasing. So that's where my perspective is. And that's my opinion. It doesn't necessarily mean that it applies to all. I just don't think the 40,000 and 8,000 cap is significant enough to uh, move the needle. And that's my opinion. What do you think, Joe? Um, yes and no. Uh, I, I kind of do like the fact that it is there for our first time home buyers. Um, now, this is Yes, if you're kind of living paycheck to paycheck, which a lot of us are, it might not be the first account I throw money into. It might be like one of the last accounts that I even think about. Um, but it's not a bad way to to start saving because a lot of first time home buyers, yeah, we're, you're not affording Toronto. Most of you aren't affording Toronto. You are kind of going outside of the of the city just a little bit, um, just to where it's a little more affordable. Uh, so houses, yeah, they're not, you're not, you're not looking at a, a detached house right away. You're probably looking at a townhouse or a semi. Um, but yeah, fill your TFSA first and then maybe fill that, that account, uh, just whatever one's going to bear you a little bit more interest, uh, whatever was going to save you the taxes. But now these are for, for people that are not living so much paycheck to paycheck. That's just another fun way to save. 
Um, and then if it's you know, just a little bit, it does help. It goes a little bit. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't use it as a main source of saving, but it's not a bad tool to have under your belt. I, I don't think it's a bad tool. I just think this is something they should have done five years ago. Oh yeah. That, that, that's really where I was, you know, where I was going with this. Mm -hmm. Um, again, it's better that, that they do something versus doing nothing. Mm -hmm. I just think that it's a little late and the affordability is kind of already out of control. So they should have reacted. And I don't think there's enough to move the needle to make that significant difference. It's sort of like when they ban the foreign buyers, you ban the foreign buyers and they represent one to 3% of the whole transaction. I don't think changing the market by 3% is going to make things affordable. And they haven't. So there you go. All right. Off to question number six. I see that bidding wars have returned as I have already lost on a couple of offers. What I am noticing is the amount the prices go over is not as high as before. Is this the new normal or will the $300,000 over asking coming around the corner? Oh, okay. Um, so every market is different. Um, I, once again, I wish I had this crystal ball and I could tell you that, yeah, list your house right now and it's going to sell for X amount over. Um, no, it, yes, the market has heated up. It's not as hot as it was before in 2022, but it, we are starting to pick up. We are starting to see houses go for a bit more and it's starting to be peaking up about everywhere about the same time. So whatever the last house sold for kind of expected the next house to sell for. So once again, kind of using that comparative market analysis, um, that's just our cornerstone of how we kind of price out properties. Um, but yeah, could $300,000 come over the next around the corner? Maybe we don't know. Um, but with interest rates being where they are, uh, uh, my safe guess right now is just, they're probably staying where they are currently. And there you have it. That's, that's fact one oh one. With a Joseph. Now, <laughs> <laughs> so on a serious note, though, and like I'm getting into it now, I mean, I've had this uh, experience as well. Uh, right now I'm working with someone and I really, we actually would have won the bid on terms of pricing and we had lost it based on conditions. So I'm thinking right now, the way the market is, the conditions is a bigger factor than the actual pricing. And here's what I've noticed. If something is listed for just say 900, I've noticed on average, it'll go over somewhere between 30 to 81,000. And that's been the average that I've seen. So, and again, if it's listed at 900, it's already under market value. That 900 is probably means the market value is 950, 960. So really it's only going 10 to 20,000 over asking like over that. So that's what I've been noticing. But I think the key thing here is you got to get your finances in order in advance. And you have, if you want an inspection, do it before the offer, because if you have those two conditions in there, I think that could be the detrimental, uh, you know, thing that impacts the result more than just the price. Um, and I always tell my clients, which is the first question, always go to what you're comfortable with, not your max go and offer what you're comfortable with go pay what you're willing to pay for it because if you get it great you got it if you didn't get it well at least you knew you weren't willing to pay more than that so it's that's once again that's my number one rule it's always go to what you can afford not what your max is 
absolutely love that advice. I was thinking the same thing, but I didn't actually say it. So I said it in my head, not on the show. Mm-hmm. Thanks for the uh, recovery on that, Joe. No problem. So number seven. Oh, I have considered getting a uh, getting into the real estate market with all the changes and some of the downward pressures in the market. Does it still make sense for someone to get into the market as an agent? Oh, that could be a very, very interesting and touchy subject. A little bit. Hmm. Um, you uh, want me to take it or you go ahead? Start? Bud. You can start. So I, I, I'm understanding the question as they want to become a real estate agent right now. Correct. All right. Perfect. So it depends. It so depends on you, your personality, um, who you are, who you know, um, because if you're coming into this market and you are thinking, you know, nobody and you are thinking, okay, I got this hundred percent. This should be easy. Let me tell you right now, I didn't have a transaction for the first two years of my career. I did purely networking, purely training, purely, like I'd lost money my first two years. Um, and we were at a good, good market point. Uh, where people were still willing to sell and buy. Now, I'm, I'm still relatively young, so I know the first two years also hurt because I was really, really young. Um, but yeah, if you're an agent, depends solely on who you are and who you know. And if you know nobody, my best advice, honestly, is get that training, get, that, get those resources under you, find a brokerage that's going to train you and train you properly. Um, you have no idea how important it is to have all that knowledge at your fingertips right off the bat. It's a good coach, a good mentor, a good something along that line. If you are not willing to be trained and coached, this industry might not be for you. That's a very interesting perspective here. Um, We're going to be a little controversial Mm -hmm. in terms of getting an agent. Is it a good time to get a license? No. No, I'm just kidding. uh, It it depends on you. A lot of things that Joe said, it was absolutely right. Um, where I would differ here is that you got to realize that many people get in here and think that it's going to be an easy thing. All my friends are going to buy from me. My family's going to buy from me. I'm going to post on Facebook and my phone's going to ring off the hook. But of course, we're in a generation that doesn't answer the phone. So I'm not going to answer it. I'm going to look at it and say, Ooh, look at the pretty phone. Look at the pretty lights. <laughs> it's making noise. And then hope that they leave a message or they start texting me. Now, if that's the generation, uh, the general thought that you have about becoming an agent, the way it works, and then they're going to start texting you and email you the offers and you're just going to get it, then no, no, not a good time to get it as an agent because it doesn't work that way. We are in what I call a relationship business and you have to build relationships. And we have Joe nodding here. So we know I'm on to something there. So it is a relationship build business and it's about getting to know people. And, and making sure that they know, like, and trust you. If you're a, pre, a people person and you like to talk to people, get to know new people, build relationships with people, and just build your overall circle of influence and everybody that knows you and people that you know, and you genuinely want to help people, then it doesn't matter what the market is doing. There's opportunity there. What might happen is the difference between a hot market and a cold market might be that in a hot market you'll find more people looking so there's less resistance. In a cold market, you might have to be out there and, you know, call on more people to find somebody who's ready. Um, You might need a part-time job in a cold market to get you through the hump until you find that first or second client. But other than that, I mean, if you're doing, you know, if you want to become a real estate agent for the right reason, 
then it's really any time is a good time. You're doing it for the right reason. Um, and again, just as long as you're consistent, you're willing to put in the work, you're willing to uh, find a mentor, then there's opportunity. But if you think people are coming to you just because you post on Facebook or Instagram or God forbid you're on TikTok, then no, if that's the reason you're there, it's not the business for you. That's my opinion. Yeah, no. Um, it's I, I, I read a stat recently that Treb, uh, so the Toronto Real Estate Board, the average agent does 0.5 deals a year. The average agent does 0.5 deals a year. That that's that's bad. That's really bad. <laughs> like if yeah. you do not sell in this business, you make no money. <laughs> Worse than that, if you do not sell in this business, you lost money because this business requires you to pay. Yeah. We're paying for licenses. We're paying brokerage fees. You know, unlike a regular job where they pay you to be there, you're paying them to be there. Yep. Right? It's, it's kind of unique that way. Yep. And you're paying your own insurance, Arizona Mission Insurance. You're paying uh, board fees. You're paying MLS fees. You're paying, you know, like it's constant. And I mean, your first year, you're probably going to spend a good $10,000 just to get into the business. That's not including any form of uh, advertising. That's just the schooling, the, uh, getting your initial license, your initial administration fees to get in and get set up. So you're going to spend ten grand, and the average person sells 0.5, just like Joe just said. And... 0.5 of a commission isn't as much as you think. I mean, you take the average commission. The average commission out there right now is about $9,000 minus the brokerage fees and all that. You're probably looking at 7,000. So you're going to collect 7,000. 0.5 mean you collect 3,500, but you spend 10,000 bucks to get in. So if you're willing to put up with that, go get your license. Knowing it's a long-term thing, just like real estate investing, this is long-term. It's not an overnight thing. It's relationship building, long-term, little by little, get to know people. Um, lucrative. 80% of the people are out of the business within the first five years. Mm -hmm. um, 20% remain. So again, if you're willing to put in the work and you're willing to put in the time and it's long-term, great opportunity. Let's move on to number eight. I am thinking of getting a, another rental property, but with the cost of homes in the GTA, trying to get a cash flowing property is difficult, but I do see opportunities in Alberta and particularly Calgary. What are your thoughts on investing in Calgary right now? That is very, very interesting. Um, I think you have to look at uh, your why. This is what I come down to. Now, I'll get you. I'll get into what I think, and then I'm going to pass it over to Joe when I'm done. So my, my opinion here is that, okay, if cash flow is your only obstacle, your apps, I mean, only goal, and that's the only thing you care about, 100%, it is very hard to get cash flowing properties when it's 5.5% uh, interest or 5.3 or 5.9, depending on whatever you get. That is very difficult to find cash flowing properties with only 20% down in toronto in fact near impossible not impossible there's always a will and a way but it's near impossible and more than likely very few people will find that opportunity so yeah you're right not a cash flowing in the gta forget it but it doesn't necessarily mean you have to go to calgary to find cash flow there might be other options if you're willing to go just outside of the city there might be opportunities so you might want to investigate other areas that are within Ontario before deciding. 
Now, on the other end is, what's your why? If it's, like, I mean, appreciation is everywhere. But the closer to the city you are, the bigger the appreciation. And that's why I said just on the outskirts of, of the city might be better. Because not to say that Calgary will not appreciate. Let me be clear. It will appreciate. But I don't think it's going to appreciate at the same level and rate that Toronto will. So with that being said, if Calgary goes up 4%, Toronto might have gone up 10%. And don't quote me on that. My point is, I'm not going to be exact numbers. I don't have the fortunes in my head. I go, it's not the exact number, but I'm giving you a point that uh, Toronto typically, by history, goes up a lot higher. Um, but you might not get cash flow, but in Calgary, you will get cash flow. So, but what's the cash flow worth? It might be 200 bucks a month, 250, 300, depending. You got to ask yourself, what's more important to you, the $3,000 a month or the appreciation? So both are good opportunities. They both have opportunities, but you got to decide what's more important. Now, if you're somewhere in the GTA and you're breaking even and you're already worried about the mortgage on a break even because you're thinking that's going to squeeze you too much, then maybe the, the GTA isn't the opportunity. Maybe the cash flow in Calgary is the better opportunity. Because then you get cash flow and the burden isn't as high on you. But there's other things you got to be worried about as well. Um, you get a flood in the in the property. Like you had a floody basement. What are you going to do? Get on a plane and hop over to Calgary to figure it out? You're going to be relying on a lot of service people. And there's going to be a certain level of cost that you have to figure out in there. Because nothing happens when everything's going well. It always happens when you're flying high and think nothing could go wrong, you're going to be at the Super Bowl, your tenant's going to call you. You're going to fly to um, to Cuba to go on vacation or Mexico or Florida or wherever to go on vacation, your tenant's going to call you. You got to know who you can call and who your resource is. So the people you work with in that network, whether it's the realtor, whether it's property management, you got to be able to know somebody you trust there who can manage this property and handle it for you because you're not really a short car drive away. So that's stuff you have to consider. So do your do's and don'ts or pros and cons and compare which one makes more sense for you. And at the end of the day, what's more important, the cash flow or the appreciation overall? And what can you afford? Because at the same time, let's be honest, Calgary, you might be able to find a, uh, a, a home investment for 500000 and Toronto, that same property might be $1 million. So that mortgage might be lower. That alone might make it worth it. Again, Talk to your mortgage broker for that because they'll know your finances just like you know your finances. Your realtor isn't going to know your finances. So talk to the mortgage broker. See what is really affordable, and then you can decide based on the pros and cons what makes more sense for you. Joseph, take it away. I mean, that, that was pretty much spot on. Um, I, I wouldn't change a lot there. Like It's so hard to find trusting people to manage your properties, especially if you're out of country. Um, it becomes a giant headache if something goes wrong. And then if, you, if you're looking at like a project that needs weeks to repair, like are you going in and out? Can you afford to be off for the week or two? Can you, like there's a lot of benefits of having your property in a driving distance. Um, it's, it's, it's a lot better for you to see it because if you're not there, it is harder to deal with the situation. Um, so, I, I don't mind investing overseas or overseas, like uh, in a different province. Um, 
but you just have to know there's a lot of risk in doing that. So you have to have a really good network set up before you can even consider doing that. Um, I know the, the property prices are always so enticing, but if your life is in the GTA and your life is busy and then you're going to put on another uh, province and like have another property in Calgary and you're going to try to build something from there. Um, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a hard time. It really is. Uh, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it, but if you're willing to do it, if you're willing to put in the work and you understand the risk and, and if you can make it work, make it work. It's not a bad, a bad idea, but you have to put in the time you have to put in the effort and you're really going to have to work for it. It's not easy. None of this is easy. You're always going to have to work. And that's the thing, right? Anything worthwhile comes with work nothing is brought to you and handed on a silver platter all right we are in question number nine mm -hmm. so joseph take it away all right i have the upper floor of my house for rent i have had application but most were not satisfactory uh there was one that was looking good but i discovered that the job letter was fake and the income was not accurate how can I ensure that I get a good tenant that hasn't falsified their documents? Oh, that one is very, very spicy because, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, let's be honest. This is becoming a problem here. I mean, rent is out of control in the GTA. Um, I had a few renters uh, that were friends. I took them around for a little while and just they, we couldn't find anything. Uh, the prices were just for three bedroom houses forget it it was almost impossible it, you had to be like making crazy monies and at that point if you're making that crazy money you might as well just buy uh, um <laughs> but yeah so um how can you what's the best way to ensure good tenants honestly uh credit report i always find is really good um and doing the legwork calling the jobs calling the references um even talking to the realtor the realtor might be a lot more insightful uh, just upon a few conversations uh, and just to see what documents they're willing to provide. Um, you can usually um, you can usually get around finding out who's telling the truth and who's not just by a few conversations. Well, that's the thing, right? Here, here's what it comes down to. I mean, you got false documents, you got fake documents, and fraud is obviously going to be something that's going to rise when in tumultuous times, which is what we're in. You know, high rents, high high cost of mortgages and squeeze margins and jobs unsustainable or unpredictable, not unsustainable, but unpredictable, people are going to need to get a home and they're not necessarily going to know how to do that. When you're making $50,000 a year and the rent is $3,500 a year, it's clearly unaffordable. So what does a person do? Some people and most people, let's be clear, most people are honest people and you won't have that problem. But there's always going to be somebody who tries, and you're right. So going to what Joe says, the one thing is having a trustable realtor, someone you can rely on. The idea is that you don't want to take someone's credit report that they provide from you. Make sure you your, your realtor runs the credit report themselves. So at least this way you get the accurate credit report, not one they provided you and have the possibility of being doctored. The second thing that could be done is do, when they give you the job letter with the telephone of their employer, don't use the information they gave you. What you do is look up the company on the internet, find out who the CEO is through the internet, whether it's LinkedIn, Google, 
whatever, you can always find out who that company is and call that person directly from the internet. Go through the chain of command. You're going to probably get the receptionist. Tell them, look, you want to get some uh, verification. You need to speak to the to the boss or whatever, or whoever the direct manager is. You know, you, you can find out the information of who the direct manager is or who the HR department is. Get the direct number. They'll put you in touch when they know it's a verification for a rental because they're going to want to help people. And they're going to assume that they're helping people. So they're not going to help you know, provide false information. So what happens is now you got the real company, the real HR department, and you'll be amazed. Sometimes they're going to say, hey, yeah, we, we that person works here. And uh, you said uh, he claimed that he made uh, 65000 Yeah, no, no, we only pay him forty five. Or uh, oh, actually, we, uh, that person has uh, recently left the job last week. I mean, I found that uh, surprising that he said he worked here. Ah, now you found something. Or you might get... The yeah, he works here. He makes the sixty-five grand you claimed. Everything is good. Um, yeah, we have no plans in uh, letting him go. I mean, uh, he's been reliable. He's a good worker. Now you know what he sent you is true. But if you go by the documents he gave you, he might have gave you his friend's number, and it might even be a friend that works there. It might not uh, be you know a random friend, but he gave you a direct number of someone he knows is going to give him a good reference. Where in this case here, you bypass that and you got the true person. That's one way to avoid it. What are your thoughts on that, Joe? Yeah, no, um, it's double trouble, double check, triple check, quadruple check. Um, with renters, that's the only way. Like, if you have a realtor working under you, make sure he checks or she checks. Make sure there's checks. Um, uh, social also provides a good, healthy indication of who the people are as well. Um, I always try to scrub Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, see what they're like. Um, you can see if they're working, not working, if they're always out partying. Like you you want to know who's kind of in your house as well. Um, and also if pets are a problem, uh, they, they really shouldn't be. But I, I know some people are a little picky with pets. Um, but yeah, so if you, wherever you need uh, to find out, the information is always available. Uh, people will find it. It does come to light, uh, but you have to search for it. You have to be willing and wanting to search for it. Um, I, I, there's lots of horror stories when you don't check. Um, and that's the problem And when you don't check. 100%, man. It comes down to you have to do your due diligence. And sometimes the people you put your trust in and your work that ha will be the ones that do your due diligence. If you don't mind doing the work yourself, then, hey, go ahead and do it. But if you want to, uh, you know, save yourself the headache, maybe hire a realtor and they'll have the uh, due diligence. And, and they have the tools they need a lot readily accessible. So that may be the option. Um, either case, it is very uh, important that you do that due diligence to make sure that you got the right person in there. And again, goes back to what I said, you know, a lot of the uh, worry stuff comes from maybe two, 3%. And unfortunately, those are the ones that stand out and the ones you hear in the news, the 97% of the people are fairly honest and fairly decent. So it's like everything else. So with that being said, this has been question number nine and we did not get any other questions here. Um, so with that being said, this has been the real estate Q and a, my name is John Papaloni and Joseph Cicada. Thank you for tuning in and participating in this week's Q and a see you on the next show. Take care, everybody.